And the problem is not, should I go for this big opportunity or not? That's some people's problem. Most people haven't gotten that far down the road to even crystallize what it is they want to do. So it's not, should I follow this passion or not? I wish it were that easy. Red light, green light. It's not. It's I won't even admit to myself what it is that I want most, because if I admit it, I'm going to have to disappoint someone. I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to break a commitment. I'm going to have to look bad to someone or several people. So the problem isn't, how can I get rid of all my problems? It's what problem do you want to solve? Because you can solve everyone else's problems and then just have the problem of this isn't the life you wanted, or you can not solve some people's problems and decide you're going to solve problems that you feel like solving. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle and welcome back to the show. I am thrilled to announce that Terry Trespicio is back on the podcast today. She's an award-winning writer, speaker, brand advisor, and author. Congrats, Terry, your new book, Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create a Life That Matters to You, which is what the show is really all about. So this is exciting to be able to jump into with you today. And it's so interesting. So your TEDx talk, the last time you were on the show called Stop Searching for Your Passion, I think it had like 5 million downloads and now it has surpassed 7 million downloads. So people are obviously really tuned into this message that you have. Um, So welcome. I'm happy you're here today. Thank you. Yeah. The more people who see it, the more people see it. Like that's just how it it goes and grows because we all share things that we like. And so it just kind of grows exponentially from there. Yeah. But you hit a chord because I think you're giving you know, this idea stop searching for your passion or unfollow your passion is not the advice that's out there. Everything's all about follow your passion. So what does it mean to unfollow your passion? Look, if you, and this is what I tell everyone, I'm not for not following it. If you know what it is, how to do it, and what you're doing is working, this is wonderful. No one's going to tell you not to do it. The reason that TEDx talk has so many views and the reason why the message lasts and why I was able to, quite frankly, sell a book like this (laughs) is because there are so many people who go, okay, great, but then that presumes I'm supposed to know what that is, or I'm supposed to know what I should be following. And, you know, I don't see passion as a decision or a major or a gift. In fact, I think passion gets overplayed. Not that it's not important, but that you're supposed to know what yours is labeled. And that's not the case. I don't see passion as anything special. It's no different from any other wonderful emotion or feeling you might have that you'd like to repeat. I love it. I love it. And I think it gives people just like an ability to just kind of go, ah, you know, take an exhale, like this idea that if they're not following their passion, that they're failing every day or something, you know? Oh my God, please. That means everyone's a failure, right? Because what are we supposed to be doing? Like tracking our passion, like a snow leopard every day <laughs> with singular focus and concentration. That's not what life looks like for most people. That's right. And I think you're right. And that's why it's popular. It's funny. You 
write um, in your book, the passion myth is kind of a fairy tale, which is what makes this whole approach particularly insidious for women. And I love this. You said, think about it. It's the belief that our one true passion is out there. And that if you're good and worthy, he'll come sweep you onto his steed and you'll, you'll live happily ever after doing what you love and you were meant to do. We have sw- simply swapped out a romantic dream for a professional ambition, the prince for passion. Love that. Yeah. And that is kind of a slightly rogue idea. I've never heard anyone say that the search for passion was sexist. (laughs) And I don't mean to imply that anyone who says it is sexist, not at all. It's not that people who say that are sexist or that our intention is sexist, but when we, we have to look under the surface of that idea and it's true because it is the same. We think we're supposed to wait until the right thing comes along and makes us happily ever after. That is no different than the garbage we have been swallowing um, about what fairy tales um, can be true and what romantic love is and what any kind of love is and what any kind of life is. So when I really thought about it and when this occurred to me, I thought, oh my God, no wonder I don't, no wonder it doesn't appeal because It assumes that some people can be loved and others can't, Mm. and that some people are deserving of this thing. In fact, I find when people use the word passion to describe what they do or why they do it, it's most often because it is um, the safe thing to say. Uh, Not that it isn't true. Not that there aren't people who are feeling passionate about their work. But think about it. If I interview you, Michelle, about something you've succeeded in or achieved, and I say, how did you make that happen? It's going to feel fine to say, well, I was just really passionate about it, so I worked really hard. Right. That sounds better than, well, it turns out I have more talent than most people, and I'm also smarter than you, and that's why I got it. <laughs> no one's going to say that because that sounds, oh, okay, fine. You think you're something. But if I say passion, passion's very democratic. And so it means everything. And to me also means it means nothing. It doesn't help us choose. Yeah. And I love, because in the book, you actually give a great example with Lori, who is a beautiful singer. No, is Lori, is is this your sister? My sister, my little baby sister. Your baby sister, who's got an incredible voice and everyone is like, this is the career you need to do, you know, and follow, right? This needs to be, this needs to be, people want to put that honor. This needs to be your passion. You need to follow it. What did Lori end up doing? Oh, she, well, she was like, gosh, people keep telling me I should do this. And even when she was a teenager and people were looking at her going, you could be the next Cosette or you could be, you know, and she said, but do, what about what I want my life to be? And she said, I don't want to go and move to New York at age 19. And so if she wanted to, then she would have, Yeah. but her life choices indicated otherwise. And again, and again, she was given opportunities and she was like, no, because if in the best case scenario, if you're a singer, your life is probably singing almost every day and or traveling a lot and being very careful about your voice and not staying up late and not screaming and not drinking and freaking out if you have a cold, your life centers around that voice. And she said, I will come to resent it. Plus, I like to sit on the couch at night and watch TV with my dog. And I want kids at that point. She was like, I want to have kids and I want to do... There's a life she wanted and there's a talent she had. Yeah. And the two didn't have to meet. In fact, what she says, and what I say in the book, yes, is yes. that when people tell her, oh my God, you're so good, you should have done this, 
she actually gets pretty offended by that. She says, I'm a grown woman. She's in her forties now. She's like, don't you think I made my choices on purpose for the life I wanted? I chose the life that was right for me. Why do you, why are you telling me I should have chosen something different? They mean it to be nice. Like we're that good. Yes. But if TikTok has taught us anything, a lot of people can sing. (laughs) If the internet has taught us anything, it's that a lot of people can sing. It doesn't dictate what your life choice should be. Because if she had done it, she'd be maybe a successful singer and she'd be miserable. Yeah. But she knew herself well enough. And I think, you know, you talk about in the book how women feel stuck. The word that they use is stuck, whereas men don't use that word. Can you? No, they don't. Yeah, they That's don't. That's why I don't use it because I refuse to assume that this is a woman problem. Good. I refuse to assume yes, that we're talk stuck more about because stuck we're women. though, but why? It's true though. I mean, I think stuck is the word women use. And I think a lot of women do feel stuck, stuck in even some of, you know, the path that they did choose. Talk more about being stuck though. Well, <laughs> what what men might say, and this is a grand, I'm making a big generalization right yeah. now. I'm sure there's men who feel stuck too. But as a rule, you might hear a man say that he's frustrated that he can't get what he wants fast enough yes. or he can't get enough of it or he wants it. But with women, you might hear women say that too. I've certainly said that. But you'll more likely hear the reason why they aren't where they need to be or feel they need to be or want to be is because they feel stuck. Now, what causes something to make, what causes anything to be stuck? A wheel to be stuck in the mud, anything to be stuck. There's two opposing forces, a pullback a pull forward, and you can't get anywhere. And I attribute that to women because women are put upon with obligations and expectations of what they should deliver to the world. Yes. And you should be doing this or that. And then there's what they actually want to do. And when they feel pulled by both equally, guess what you're not doing? moving in any one direction. Yeah. Does that mean you say, I guess I'll just you know screw everybody. I'm just not going to have any obligations. I'm going to ride off into the sunset. No, of course, uh, most of us cannot do that. But we've got to get real clear about what we are aiming to do, exceed expectations that weren't ours to begin with, or are we going to go for what we want? Because when you ask just say a woman, not every woman. But if you ask a woman, like, if you feel stuck, why don't you do this? Well, I can't because. Exactly. And they'll pull back toward what they feel someone else expects of them. Okay. Well, then I hope you like being where you are because you're going to have to say no to something. And why does it always have to be you? Exactly. That's beautiful. And it's right. And it, But it is. It really, most of the time, it really is the woman. You know, it really is the woman. I think we tend to want to please. I mean, you talk about it in your book as well. You know, when we start out, there's so many influences in our lives about all the things we're supposed to be and measure up to be. And you tell the funny story of going over to your friend's house when you were seven years old and she makes you, well, she offers you a button, tells you to eat it. And did you eat it, Terry? I did. Yeah. You swallowed that This girl was a bully. (laughs) She was a bully. She was like, do this, do that. Like she just bossed me around a lot. And then one day she did a a button broke off her bedspread and she handed to me, she says, eat it. And I said, but can you even eat that? And she said, oh, it's candy. It's a candy. And I was like, I was like, okay, so I know that candy necklaces exist. So can you have a candy bedspread? And I remember being like, I want to believe her. But what I realized then was that people in power can say things and they don't have to be true. And I said, I want it to be candy so bad. And I remember the feeling of putting it in my mouth and biting down and knowing it wasn't candy, but but saying like, you're going to swallow it. It's like, that was the not the very beginning because earlier that year, I received Holy Communion 
And you're also told to swallow that too. We're told to swallow lots of things in order to make it here because no one can make you swallow. Swallowing is an act only you can do for yourself. But how many times do we as people, but especially as women, swallow what other people want us to swallow, agendas, obligations, expectations, whatever. And at some point, if you want to do what you want, you're going to have to disappoint someone. You can't, if you go through life and you say, well, I'm just not going to disappoint anyone ever, and that's going to be my gold medal. I hope you like living other people's lives or doing what other people want all the time. I hope you don't mind not having your own choices. Um, So that's, I mean, okay, fine. I want to also say, this is very easy for me to say, Number one, because I've had a privileged existence and I have had more options than other people. So that I understand. That puts me in a different category of, oh, deciding what I want to do. It doesn't mean I'm the only one who has choices. We all have choices. But the other thing is I chose not to marry and have children the way a lot of people do. And it wasn't a big act of rebellion. I just kind of never got around to it and kind of never really interested me that much. But I've met people who say, yeah, I wasn't really interested in it either, but I did it and I just thought you were supposed to do it. And I was like, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anyone regrets their choices necessarily, but how many of the things do we do because we thought we were supposed to? Yeah. Turns out we're not supposed to do anything. That's right. And I think women are the first to compromise or tend to oh. be the ones to have to compromise. Um, and that can create that stuckness and that feeling of, you know, well, how do I get out? How do, you know, you talked about the push and the pull. So how do they move forward? What, what's a first step some woman can take if she's really sitting here going, yes, Terry, I do feel stuck. I, I have made some choices and, you know, I'm grateful for my life or I'm not grateful wherever you're at, but I don't know how to go forward. I don't know how to have that more fulfilled life that I think we're all looking to seek. What would you tell her? Well, important is there's not one destination for more fulfilled life. It's not like let's all meet in Sacramento (laughs) and everyone has to figure out a way to get there. It's like, there's going to be your version of your fulfilled life. And it's not, well, if you don't do X, you'll be unfulfilled. You can have a fulfilling life doing lots of different things with lots of different endings to that story. But one of the things I do walk people through in the book are prompts for writing, not because you have to be a writer, but because writing is a tool for thinking. And if you can get into the practice of saying what you want on the page, you will get it out of your head and be able to look at it. And the problem is not, should I go for this big opportunity or not? That's some people's problem. Most people haven't gotten that far down the road to even crystallize what it is they want to do. So it's not, should I follow this passion or not? I wish it were that easy. Red light, green light. It's not. It's I won't even admit to myself what it is that I want most, because if I admit it, I'm going to have to disappoint someone. I'm going to have to say no. I'm going to have to break a commitment. I'm going to have to look bad to someone or several people. So the problem isn't uh, what, how can I get rid of all my problems? It's what problem do you want to solve? Yeah. Because you can solve everyone else's problems and then just have the problem of this isn't the life you wanted. Or you can not solve some people's problems and decide you're going to solve problems that you feel like solving. So no matter what it is, if there's something you really want to do, you maybe you don't get to do a Jerry Maguire and like walk out and quit everything and start over. Most people don't do big dramatic uh, do-over like that. But well, what are you do? What could you do to get you toward what you want to do? What's the risk of doing it? What's the risk of not doing it? Which of course, as you know, is what a good coach asks. And while I'm not a coach. I know that coaches help people see what their options are because that's the problem is that we don't see all of them. 
Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who I hadn't connected with and we had, you know, moved to different parts of the country and just had kind of fallen away and we reconnected and she was in not a great place. And I said, you know, what do you want? She's like, I don't even know anymore. She had, that's what I hear the most of. They don't know. Right. But so I loved what you said about writing prompts. Now I want to tell um, this audience that I actually spent a day with Terry in San Diego. You were leading a writing retreat. And I have to say it was one of the most fun things that I've ever done. Wow. It really was. It was so fun. There were only four of us in that. It was like an intimate. It was intimate. It was. It was lovely. Um, but you gave us these prompts. And I think, don't you know, I wouldn't want somebody to underestimate what an open-ended sentence or, you know, a suggestion can take you to because it was in the work, the writing, the ideas, the emotions that all flowed out in that day were so deep. It was really healing and beautiful. And so I'm wondering, maybe you could give us a prompt. So there's a woman who was like, I don't even know what I want anymore. Like I can't even, there's not even any space for me to think about me. Like there's so many obligations. I'm yes. so in it. Yes. And they have 15 minutes to just write. What what's a what's a prompt we can give them today? I have a prompt, but I want to precede the prompt by saying what this is. Yes, because please. there's lots of you can buy a book of writing prompts. I mean, I have several books of them. I never open them. <laughs> um, I just never use them. I'm like, nah, I love to come up with my own prompts. That's part of it. But Part of this, as you know, Michelle, is because we talked about it and you've done it and you've talked to the woman who founded it, is that I am certified in a method for creative content, for generating content and ideas, and for self-knowledge called the Gateless Writing Method. And it's not just for writers, although writers love it. I've done this with business people uh, from all different industries. I've sat down with groups of financial advisors, administrative assistants, VPs at major organizations. It doesn't matter. I've done it with enough different types of groups, none of whom have any kind of writing background necessarily, and found that it is as effective no matter what. The idea of it is we have so much in our brain, the inner critic screaming out, telling us, oh, shut up, don't do that. And you'll never do that. And ah, that critic gets so loud that you actually just sometimes just get beaten down to a corner and you don't do anything, right? Yep. Uh, and so part of that is quieting that voice. And how? By telling it to shut up? Well, no. We get to that point of freedom by saying, okay, well, put the critic in the backseat. We'll get to it later. Right now, I'm going to give you just five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I'm going to give you a prompt and you don't have to think about anything else. Just write out, out whatever you can think of. Don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about punctuation. Just write your heart out. Whatever comes to mind, um, go. And so I do oh, tons of different prompts I use for different groups and for different moods we're in. But what's particular about the prompts I give is that they never have an emotional slant. I'm not going to be like, talk about the hardest time in your life. I mean, that's leading, yeah. like leading the witness. Like, I don't want to lead the witness. I also want to go talk about time you were really happy. Those are very broad times. It's just kind of hard. Yeah. So I'll give prompts that nudge your mind open, but give you freedom, but focus so that you can just write what, and I get people into a state of meditation, just kind of calm and tuned into the body because you don't just do it with your brain, you do it with your whole body. And whatever memory floats up, whatever image floats up, I say, grab it by the tail and follow it, follow it onto the page and just write. And so I do that and I'll give you a prompt now that would be great to do if you're going, God, I feel stuck. Realize the prompt doesn't fix stuckness. It shows you 
where, what's coming up for you and what kinds of things are, are dancing around below the conscious level. So for someone who says, well, I'm feeling stuck and everyone's feeling stuck, we're going to give a prompt to the group today. And I would say, I want you to think about a time when things felt effortless. It could have been a moment you remember at your grandfather's house on the lake where you were learning the backstroke and you learned to just backstroke along on a summer day and what that felt like. If that's the memory that comes up for you, write down everything you remember about that moment. If it was effortless in that you were running because you were a runner in high school, or maybe you were giving a presentation, I want you to tap back into that moment when things felt just almost weightless and smooth and had ease about them. And remember it because it's happened to you. If you're human, it's existed in your body at one point. Tap into that and set the timer for maybe 10 minutes and start writing. Now, normally in a workshop, I would then say, okay, I would silence myself and now you're going to go. And maybe people want to pause here and do that. And then I say, okay, what did you write? Now in a group setting, as you know, Michelle, yeah. we would take turns reading out loud the rough draft, yeah, the very raw thing. We just said, oh my God, I don't want to read this thing. You do. And what we do then is point out the genius in it. What did we love about it? Now that brings us to a level of, of a kind of dynamic of feedback that can make you feel so tuned into your own attention and work in ways that most of us never got in school. So there's that. But aside from that part, if you're doing this on your own, is to look at it and don't judge it. Don't go, oh, I should have written it better. You don't have time for that. Look at the work and say, what came up? Were you surprised by it? What clues is it giving you about where your mind's at now? Why do you think you thought of that now? What does it open up for you? Because if you go, wow, I just realized that, um, da, 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 da. like you're going to have awakenings about your own life that I couldn't give you. Another one I ask, especially since we're talking about being stuck, and sometimes that happens around our work. Another great prompt to try is a, one of the first times you got paid to do something. What was one of the first times you got paid? Babysitting, lifeguarding, making grilled cheeses at the town pool like I did. Um, what did you get paid to do? And what did you love about it? What'd you hate about it? Anything. You can write anything you want. But when people write about that, they experience their first moment of participating in economy, of being a contributing member of a community, of being worth something, or maybe made them feel horrible. Whatever it is, there's no good or bad. Learn from your own stuff. And that can be really powerful. So a lot of the book, I say like, yeah, I, of course, I'm going to tell you things to think about and how to approach things. But at the end of the day, it's going to be you and your experience. It's going to show you what makes sense next. Completely. And one of the things I loved about your book was that you invite people at the end of each of the chapters and the ideas that you present to journal, to write, to go in and become introspective, because that is where the answers lie. But when you are stuck or so busy and filled with all these obligations and you're not taking 10 minutes a day or even a week, heck, right? Whatever you can fit in um, to really connect with yourself and what you want or where you're stuck, then you're just stuck in the, you are stuck in the loop and it's hard to you break free. Stuck. Yeah. We'll just keep batting away things and going, I can't, I can't, I can't. Okay. Well, you're right then. Right. You're right. right. You can't, right. you won't. Right. Right. So your book, I loved that part of the book that it wasn't just the information. It was like, here's some, you know, some ways and things to think about and to journal about. And because journaling is so, so powerful. Um, let me ask, you do talk about this idea of having a calling. 
Do you believe that people have callings or is this another kind of thing like outside of us, like this passion that we're supposed to, you know, have? I don't think it's on me. Yeah. I don't think I can tell what other people feel they're doing, why they're doing it. So I wouldn't attempt to tell people that they don't have a calling, just like I wouldn't tell someone not to follow their passion. I take the language seriously and I find most of the language inadequate at best and suspect at worst. Because when we say calling, that's another way of talking about passion, purpose. People use these terms independently or sorry, interchangeably. Right. But the thing I don't like about calling, I don't like anything too sacred and I don't like precious. And calling assumes that there are certain things that you should be doing that are more important than others. So if someone feels called to do uh, this one job, well, then the person who has to have a job that isn't that great, they didn't get called. They weren't on the short list. <laughs> it's not very, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit, it's a little precious. I just, I don't like the language so much. Um, it, what I write about in that chapter is how I was a Catholic school kid and I asked sister Terry why she became a nun. And she said, you're, how do you know you're supposed to be a nun? Like, how did you know? It was such a bizarre life if, to me yeah. to be a nun. Oh, you're called to do it. And I was like, oh, that's good. Then that's another call I don't want to take. Like <laughs> I was figuring out what phone calls not to take. Cause I was like, well, how do you know you're called? I'm never going to tell you whether you do or don't have a calling. But I think that when everyone hears that everyone else has a calling, again, they're like, well, I didn't get a call. Um, But Sister Terry didn't really tell me much about it, except that you're called to be a nun. And I was like, well, who calls you, Jesus, directly? Like, I don't want him to call me. How do I avoid caller ID? Uh, But here's the thing that I think about. Um, I go back to this one study that I found. It was years ago, and I still go back to it. Amy Rizniewski and her colleagues at the Yale School of Management uh, did a study that was published in the Journal of Research and Personality. And they defined three things, job as a means to an end, a career as a path to advancement, and calling as meaningful, fulfilling, socially useful work that's integral to our own identity. Mm. Now, that's their definition of it for the purposes of this, because they wanted to ask people, do you see yourself having a job, a career, or calling? It turns out job and career are very close. Job is something you do for the money. Career is a series of trade-ups of jobs to get more money, more status, more recognition. Nothing wrong with that either. But a calling sounds like, oh, it's transcendent. And you might assume, well, you maybe have a job as a copywriter or a a, a career as the head of an agency, but you'd be called to teach English or something. Like somehow it's this noble thing. And like, I really hate that. Anyway, the point is what they found in that study was that it wasn't the kind of job or title or income that determined whether someone saw their work as a job, career, or calling. And that it's actually not necessarily, you might go, well, someone who works at fast food restaurant is obviously just has a job. Maybe, but maybe that, maybe that person goes on to run that whole organization, right? right? What they found is that, and this is just one of the many, you know, this is a smallish study, and they took an even smaller subset of the study of a group of people who had the same job, admin assistant at college, hmm. at a university setting, all the same job. <clears throat> and they looked at what were the different, you know, what did people refer to their job as? And the people who saw their work in that role as a calling, one of the many statistics, like the details of that subset was that they were at the job longer. 
Now, it's not the only defining uh, or contributing factor. And we can't assume that because it was a calling, they stayed longer. That's very convenient. What we have to understand is that being in something longer and learning to master it can become a calling. No one was like, I'm called to be an admin assistant at this university. But if you're there long enough, it's not just your job title. It's, oh my God, if I weren't here, this office couldn't run. I'm called to serve higher education. I'm called to do this. The job changes into a calling based on how the person who holds it sees it. And that was really eye-opening for me Yeah, because I realized you could do anything for a long time and hate it, or you could do something for a long time and realize that it draws on and helps shape part of your personality Mm. in a really great way. So I don't say like, oh, I was called to be a brand advisor because I made (laughs) up that title. I like stole it from someone, but I'm not called to do that. I just like working with words and I'm good at it. And I like helping people nail their messages. So people call me for that. And then I do it for them and they pay me. It worked out, but let's not pretend Jesus called me to do it because he most definitely did not. You're so funny. People need to know that you do stand-up comedy. We talked about it in the first interview you did, which is we talked about how to stand out in a sea of sameness, which I'll link in the show notes too, because that was a great interview. But P.S. I do not make my living from comedy, to be clear. You do not, but I really think you could. I just will, I will say that. I don't want to be like how people are with your sister. Well, you've missed your calling. (laughs) Terry, you've missed your calling because- you kind of know yeah, that. But Michelle, I, you know why I don't do it? Because I don't want to stay up late night drinking and staying in crappy motels. And to me, that's what that life would look like for decades. And I'm not interested. Interesting. Well, again, so it's a matter of choice. And I think, you know, these are these are perfect examples of how you can approach your own life. Um, it, you talk about how um, when you were younger, you used to call your mom every night. And she said, and you were really feeling depressed and kind of lost. Oh. And she said, honey, you don't plan your life. You don't plan your life, then live it. You create it by living it. Please take a job, any job. Yes. So please uh, take a job. I called her every night. Do you remember when I had a temp job? I was in my early 20s. She was like, you need to get a job. You need to get a job. You have no friends. You have no life. And I was like, but I don't want to. I'll be stuck there forever. She's like, you will not be stuck there forever. But it was the 90s. Like I just thought like, well, I'll never be able to leave. But this is, but no, this is so perfect because I think a lot of people are afraid to just Try something on, you know, just get into the action. Can you speak more to that? Because you can't just <clears throat> be paralyzed with, you know, the indecisions. And and even if you're not clear, you got to get into some motion, don't you? Oh, my God. The answer is exactly what my mother said. Yeah. Take a job, any job. When people say, well, I don't know, because I'm not really passionate about that job. Oh, screw you. You're not passionate about the job. Are you passionate about eating? Because I'm passionate about having a nice bed and I like to order takeout and like, I want to have a life that I, I, that I can live in. And then I was so unhappy. Um, this kind of luxuriating over, but I don't know what's the right path. You don't know. It's all plow your own path here. Yeah. There was no plan. And I'd be lying if I say I had a plan. Well, then I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Some people have those plans. If it works for you, great. Never worked for me. I don't want to know. I don't look and see what my gifts are before Christmas. And I don't want to know what's coming because I find that exciting for me. So I like to plant a lot of seeds and see what happens. But back then, I needed to have a reason to shower and leave the house. And when I went and took that office job as a basically an office assistant, I was an executive assistant. I didn't know how to do anything. They had to train me from the ground up because there was nowhere lower to go. And I started to learn how to do stuff and got better and better at it. Yeah. 
basic office skills, PowerPoint, answering phone calls, uh, booking travel. I mean, things I didn't know how to do. And all of a sudden, everyone depended on me to do it. Mm. Oh, give that to Terry. Terry can have, Terry, can you help with it? All of a sudden, I was in demand. It didn't matter what the job was. It felt really good to be needed there. Mm. And then after a few years, it was time to go try something else. But I wish I could go back and tell myself that because I turned down uh, things because I was afraid, afraid, afraid. It wasn't enough money. I couldn't live like that. I'd be stuck there forever. Oh, let, let me tell you, I wasted a lot of time doing that. Yeah. But I think a lot of us waste a lot of time. And if the pandemic shed a light on anything, it was just how precious life is and that maybe there isn't this time to waste, you know, so it doesn't have to be perfect. Just try something on, right? Just as your mom said, just you create, you create your life by living it. Just and also by who you meet. And by who Twilight. you meet by who you meet, Twyla Tharp, who is, of course, a famous choreographer, but a brilliant writer. Yeah. Oh my God. I had no idea until I read her books. And she says two things, I believe she's the one who said it, two things that will change your life within the next five years, the books you read and the people you meet. Mm. Not what job you take, although of course that is good. Who you marry? Yeah. All these things will also affect your life. Yeah. But if you are continuing to expose yourself to new ideas, and people, you might go and get fall into this job. You don't even care about it, but you need the benefits right now. And you go and you do it, but then you meet someone there and you really like them and you admire them. And then they leave and they take you with them. I mean, you don't know. You don't also kind of like, you don't plan your life out by yourself. It's based on who you meet and who you want to be around. How will you know who you should be around if you don't meet anyone? Yeah. I, the most rewarding things I've done in my life were with people. I thought I want to hook my wagon to this person or they hooked their wagon to me. I mean, those things really matter. Those relationships change everything. Yeah. And the job itself, it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. So what advice would you give just from, I mean, there's so many, you know, all the chapters in the book cover so many different things that we can be doing in a different perspective on living in life. Give us a couple of your key takeaways that's, you know, you got to think about a lot of the women that listen are somewhere between like 35, 65 years old. Many are moms. And I think many of them, you know, you, what you, that last example you were talking about everyone, you becoming in demand when you had just been sitting on your couch, feeling depressed, suddenly people needed you and it felt good. I think a lot of women are lacking confidence because they, they're stuck with their obligations more than their they're connected to what the, you know, doing things that fill their cup for them, well, of course, for just them. But is it, is it linear? If we look at it as a zero sum game where I have to do things for me and be selfish and be a bad mom, be a bad wife or be a bad, whatever, yeah. or I can do things for everyone else. It's not that it's yeah. a spectrum, yeah. like everything. Yeah. But you know what I think might be important to mention now is age because you know, I'm in, I'm teetering toward 50 now, right? I'm like my late forties, right? So my friends who I grew up with or went to school with were all Gen X and they're starting to sound sometimes old to me mm -mm. with the way they talk about it. Now, and that bothers me because you're not old. Talk to an 80 year old. You're a goddamn baby. If you're in your forties, right? Like that is just not <laughs> that this age thing is is crazy because there's no one age you turn that now you're old. Yeah. Because the fact yeah. is the people who complain about feeling and being old and out of it, quite frankly, they were doing it when we were 29. Mm. 
and they would say, well, I'm old now. And I don't hear a lot of it because I don't hang out with people like that. Mm-hmm. In fact, my friends tend to be a little younger just by circumstance of what the things I do and who I meet in my lifestyle yes. because I, uh, because of where I live, whatever. So I tend to hang out with younger people, but now those younger people are getting into their mid thirties and they're starting to worry that they're old. And I'm like, uh-uh, <laughs> you don't get to say that around me. Um, but I want to say that because there's this idea that all of the promise you had in the world um, is now gone. Right. And now that you've had a job, left a job, had kids, want to get back into working or whatever, that, oh, now I'm too old, no one wants me. First of all, all of the geographic require, not all, but a lot of them have gone away. Now the world is a pool of talent and skill. Yes. You can apply for jobs and do work for people anywhere. And in all the work that I'm doing, I've been doing business working for myself for 10 years. Only one person, I think, has asked me how old I was. Wow. And it was a man who I think was making assumptions about me, and, and that was not great. But as a rule, I don't think anyone cares. But if you're a person who talks about age and talks about how you're old, yeah, okay, you're old now. Uh, I'd say speak for yourself because I don't feel old. And I also think when we talk about it's not that ageism doesn't exist. I know it does in certain industries, yeah. really hard to get into. Mm-hmm. I'm fine, I get it. But what's the alternative? I guess you'll roll over and just wait for your heart to stop beating and someone throws you into a hole in the ground. Like you're done now. This idea that you stop giving or contributing to the world, I think is made up. If you're bored or you want to do stuff and you want to offer value, find ways to do it. There's never been the kind of accessibility to tools and resources and courses. There's no reason you can't learn things except when you tell yourself you can't learn things. So, you know, I didn't move to New York City till I was 36. I got laid off a few years later and I started working for myself and I was in my 40s and I didn't even know what I was doing and I was making it up. So don't tell me that, oh, well, at a certain age, it's hard. Because mm. I was at breakfast with a friend of mine who I went to college with and she's tired of, she's been in the same career and she's yeah. ready for a change. Yeah. And she said, well, but Terry, don't you think like, you know, people our age are having a hard time. I go, I don't even know what you're talking about. You made up a story and I'm not listening to it. I said, what are you going to do? You're going to wait till you drop dead now? You're done. You're done with life. You're not, your kids aren't even teenagers yet. You have a lot of stuff to do. So don't tell me, oh, it's hard. I really hate that. So hear yourself, right? Not you, Michelle, but hear yourself. We must listen to how we talk about ourselves and our age because I don't know. I just saw JLo in concert and my God, did she look amazing. I know she's rare. No, but she like, is, but she, yes, she's she not, looks, she, she makes 50 look good. I just turned 50 this year. So I hear you, but she made 50 Happy birthday. She's 52. God. I, know. I mean, like we all are getting older. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Stop telling yourself you can't contribute or do things. I haven't, you know, I know that we think about retirement and people used to talk about retirement at 55. I don't even know what anyone's talking about. Cause I kind of feel like I'm just getting started. I love that. And I think you're right though. And I think you're right. I think how we talk to ourselves who we hang out with. And then that mindset can kind of be contagious, right? It's like, oh, then it becomes the norm to say, oh, well, you know, it's too late or I've missed my opportunity or I have all this regret and looking back instead of just being in the now and looking forward to what is possible. Do the journal prompts, get in touch with yourself, right? Get connected and get into action like your mom. Do something. Get, Get into your act, get into action. But also- the aspects of what we do that we like doing 
we can enjoy no matter what the job is. For instance, we talked about comedy. Yes. I will never study comedy and practice it in my 30s and be a famous comic by the time I'm 40 because I'm not, I can't go back in time. That doesn't matter. That was not the path. If I wanted to do that, I would have known. I wasn't interested. I didn't even start trying comedy until I was over 40. But comedy and studying it and performing it didn't give me the the personality that I I have, I already am that. Comedy is just skill building. It's a specific, very specific format and forum for learning to apply what you have. So while people go, oh, you're funny. Oh, well, she's a stand-up. Well, I was already funny before I did stand-up. I just learned to do it later. But here's why I say this. I don't need to be a famous comic in order to enjoy doing comedy. I do a lot of public speaking. I do. I speak to workshops and groups, and I make people laugh there. I can use that skill wherever I want. So this idea that you have to somehow crush in one specific industry with to make the world know you. I don't want the world knowing me. Quite frankly, I'd rather they all mind their own business. So I'm fine with that. And we can explore and apply things we love. Take, for instance, Michelle, people who say, well, I always wanted to write a book by the time I was 50, but now I'm 51. Okay, so you're not going to write a book by the time you're 50. What's behind that? Oh, and this gets into, can we talk about the bucket list thing quickly? Yes, please. This idea that I'm supposed to have written a book by this age, or I wanted to have a podcast by last November. Well, you didn't. So ask yourself, why was that the goal? I want to say book specifically, because having just written my first book, it it is a wonderful experience, and it's a long haul, years and years, and it's not just about what you write. It's like launching a business. I say this because if you have a desire to write a book, ask yourself, is it that I want to hurry up and write a book so I can say I wrote a book? Is it because I want to be in the throes of writing a book? Or do I just like to tell people I'm working on a book? What part of that on your bucket list with this specific item appeals? Because books only existed because podcasts and blogs didn't exist. Now there's a million ways to express yourself in writing in speaking that don't require that you publish a book and do a TED talk. Like you don't have to do those things. In fact, if anyone invented the idea of a book now, people be like, no one's ever going to read that. (laughs) So like, you don't have to finish a book. If it is, well, I want to do more writing and I'd like to share that writing. I don't know if I care if, you know, Random House publishes it. Okay. Then there's a gazillion ways for you to start writing and to share your work so that you can share what you do with an audience and express yourself. Maybe that'll scratch the itch. Whereas struggling to sell a book that you didn't really want to write, why? So pare back the elements of what you most want rather than label it. I want to run a marathon. Do you like running? You better like running. Why don't you go out and run a mile first before you decide you have to run a marathon? Yeah, no, this is good. It's good because we talked about having all the obligations and maybe feeling stuck. And then we add to the list with these maybe random or, you know, unreasonable goals that we don't even know why we want to throw them on a bucket list. I actually don't even like the word bucket list. It should be something it. enjoyable. It should be like desire list or something. I don't know why we call it a bucket. It's we really call it because it's kick the bucket. No, I know that part, bucket. but right. But it's ugly. It's ugly. It's ugly. Right. As women, like, I feel like that's also like a very masculine I'm energy. Also puke in a bucket. Yeah, exactly. They're filthy. Why do you want to, why do you want to think about buckets? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I know. Right? <laughs> buckets are so filthy. So we want like a lovely desire list. So, right. But ask the question why, ask the question why before and what you- aspects of that thing 
are there aspects of that thing you could enjoy right. that don't require that you go do open mics in Manhattan, which they're a little dreary sometimes. Like, do you want to be doing that? Yeah. Like, like why? Right. What parts of it can you enjoy? Yeah. It's funny because you do talk about in the book that it's okay to be comfortable. There's this idea that you have to go out and like, what is, you know, people say like, you have to challenge yourself every day or go out, of your, get out, of, your get out of your comfort zone every single day. And you're like, why do you want to be uncomfortable every day? Can you just talk about no, this? No, I don't, I don't sign on to this belief at all. Yeah. Um, I, you know why? Because as soon as everyone's saying it, I go, sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Like yes. why is everyone saying you should get out of your comfort zone. You need to be uncomfortable. I want you to get comfortable being uncomfortable. First of all, it makes no sense. Um, here's why I think that's, that's <laughs> bogus. Well, it's it's biased because I don't like to be uncomfortable. The difference is I don't, I don't consider comfort and complacency the same thing. I don't consider comfort laziness. Comfort is comfort. Let's be specific. Yeah. I function best in my comfort zone. When I'm rested, fed, and relaxed, you're going to get the best out of me. I'm going to give you my best attention. I'll be most uh, attentive and creative, all those things. When I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to get hangry. I'm going to be edgy, irritable, and it's not my best. So it's not that I'm going to stay in a small place. It's that when it's time to grow, and I challenge myself often, yes, I look at what I want to be comfortable with next, not where I want to be uncomfortable. So I didn't go do stand-up, which I did for year, like every week, getting up there and bringing, dragging my friends to shows. I didn't do it because I was like, yeah, I do it because I, I really love being uncomfortable and I'm going to make myself uncomfortable. I have fun. Like most of the world is on some form of Prozac. Like we don't, we're trying to sort of lower those vert, those spikes. I did it because I wanted to be comfortable on stage. Mm. There's enough discomfort in our lives. I get uncomfortable enough that I seek to make it comfortable wherever I can so I can give something my best. So I still think being on stage in comedy specifically is one of the scariest things. I'd rather get up at a conference with 10,000 people than in a club with 20 people. Mm. That's scarier to me. But I do it because I want to get more comfortable. So this idea of seeking discomfort in, um, is an anxiety-addled experience that I do not seek to pursue. You can if you want, but I just think whenever I hear that, I'm like, Meh, have fun. I'm going to be here on my couch, warm, dry, how I prefer to be. <laughs> it's Yeah. It's all these kind of things that become popularized. And then you're right. It's like everyone starts talking about it. And then it's just another layer. And we're trying to, I'm, what I'm taking away from all this is like, let's really just shed those layers and all the self-editing and everything and just get really in touch with what do you want? Why? And what action can you take in a way that maybe is comfortable to get you moving forward? Is that what you'd say? Would you yeah. agree with that? Yes. Why? When you go to a therapist, are you on a cozy couch? <laughs> Why is ski apparel so expensive? Because to be uncomfortable in an uncomfortable element is premium. And so I seek to make myself and others comfortable so that we can focus on what matters most. I love it. I, I really love the way you're, you uh, look at life, Terry, and the way that you make us laugh while teaching us. And I did laugh a lot throughout your book because, you know, Thank the you. stories you share, you're hilarious. And maybe because I've also been around you too, it's like I could hear your voice, like your actual voice, which made me, which made me laugh. Um, I want to direct people to your work. Any Last thoughts you want to leave the women with today on, on following their passion to create a life that matters. 
I believe that what we need are not, what we need as women is not more hope for specific outcomes, but more options. The more options we have as women to choose, the more in control we are and feel. So I think that we suffer from a bit of tunnel vision around what we think we can or should do. And my own goal, if I have a goal in this, aside from writing something that I hope is is useful and moving to other people and helps them move in their lives, it's that the real freedom that we seek, because we want that most of all, we want mm-hmm. to know that we're in charge of our own lives, comes when you look at all of your options and you're honest about them, and that you're okay with not pleasing the world as you do, that it's okay to do that, and that the secret is in giving yourself and the world your all, but doing it on your terms, and that it is your right to do that. I can't tell you the right choices to make in your own life. Um, you know, that's not who am I to say that. But if the book helps you to see your options more clearly and feel stronger in your own sovereignty, then I have done my job. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, where can people learn more about your work, get the book, and also maybe get access to some of your uh, writing salons that you do? You do some free yes. writing salons, and those are super well, fun. Right. I will tell everyone, the gateless method. And we should mention Suzanne Kingsbury, who started it, that you're certified. Yes. That Terry certified. certified Dozens and dozens. There are so uh, many around. Everyone takes their own slant and has, it's the same tool. Um, So yes, Suzanne Kingsbury changed my life with that. But if you want to join me on this journey, I would direct because my name is a pain. So just go to unfollowyourpassion.com because I'm no dummy and I got that domain. If you go there, you'll see how to pre-order the book. And when you do, you get access to special bonuses. And when you put in your information there, you'll also be in my loop so that when I have a workshop coming up, you'll be the first to know about it. Perfect. And those, and I will say they're so fun. They're just so much fun to get connected through that way of the gateless way of writing. It's just a beautiful experience. Um, Terry, I love connecting with you. It's always so much fun. You're a beautiful light in the world and always just great to, to see you and to have you share. Thank you so much, Michelle. I love being back on. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.